Welcome back to another episode of the Pajama Interviews. I'm your host, Michelle Irving, and this is a podcast for intelligent, talented, and creative women living with chronic illness. I'm absolutely delighted to share this conversation with Lauren Selfridge, a San Francisco-based therapist and a woman living with MS. This interview is all about career, the conversations we have in clinicians' office about our boundaries and taking care of our own physical well-being. This week is also a very special week. In these first couple of weeks of October 2021, you can book a complimentary consultation with me. It's for a very short period of time. So just listen at the end and you'll get the details. Now, let's dive in with Lauren. Thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us. I want to share with everybody that Lauren's a therapist in San Francisco and I came across her through her great podcast, This Is Not What I Ordered. Her work is beautiful and luminous and I'm really delighted that you've taken the time to speak with me today so that we can share with all of the women experiencing serious illness and chronic illness the love, joy and wisdom that you have and that we can move forward together. So welcome, Lauren. It's so lovely and amazing to meet you. And I remember the first time I laid eyes on your work and your website, I just felt this sigh of relief, like, ah, she's on this earth doing what she's doing. And I'm so grateful. And um, just your way is so important. And I, I feel a lot of resonance with how you treat illness mm-hmm. on a spiritual level. Oh, thank you so much. This is going to be, I'm really excited to have this discussion. <laughs> so in order to just share with the audience, what condition are you living with and how is the diagnosis process for you? I live with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis i had to think of what the words were because there are different ways to talk about ms and i know that if you go for a while without a relapse you could just have some people call it remitting um multiple sclerosis which is a much more attractive name to me (laughs) Um, and i've been living with it for about six years And so what does it mean remitting or relapsing? Can you explain a little about what that is for us all? Sure. So relapsing is when symptoms or brain and spine lesions increase. Mm -hmm. And remission is when there's a dissipation of symptoms. And at least for me, the way that I define it is my level of ability, my Mm -hmm. level of feeling like, quote unquote, my old self. And that's really different for different people with MS because baseline ability can change over time. So there can be periods of relapse, periods of remission. Some people move into a different diagnosis called um, progressive or secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. It is a mysterious disease. We're not sure what causes it. We don't have a cure for it. We have different treatments but it is unpredictable to some extent. And every person with MS has different experiences of symptoms because 
the different places where the lesions show up on the brain and the spine could impact a whole other part of the body. So while some people have numbness, some never do. Some people have brain fog, some never do. There's so many different ways that it shows up. And what was your process or experience up to diagnosis? I woke up one morning with a really significant symptom that was bizarre to me. I found that when I put my feet on the ground, one could feel the cool of the floor and the other felt warm. And I thought my foot had fallen asleep. And I've actually since found other people with almost the exact same story and got so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one who had this first symptom. And so what I thought was this fallen asleep foot never woke back up, at least not for that day, not for that week. And even months went by and the numbness increased, shifted to my other foot, went up my leg into my mid torso. And we couldn't figure out at first what it was. I went to a neurologist who did not specialize in multiple sclerosis at first. And she told me that I had a stress condition. <gasps> wow. Here, you know, we hear that you know, certainly stress can impact our bodies, but a lot of us hear this story of maybe it is not something medical. Maybe it's this, you know, you just have stress showing up. And something deeper in me said, this can't be, I mean, I'm not that stressed out. This can't be that. And I went, started scheduling with all these other types of practitioners. And it wasn't until I was lying on the table in an acupuncturist's office who was giving me incredible personal attention. And she noticed that I didn't feel any sensation when she was putting the needles in certain parts of my back. And she thought it was really weird because I'm pretty sensitive. <laughs> so sometimes I say, ouch, on the side of my back where I did have sensation and on the other side, nothing. Mm -hmm. So she actually called a colleague in the room with me, spoke with him, and the two of them said, Lauren, you need to demand a brain and C-spine MRI because at that point they'd only ordered lower spine MRIs. Mm -hmm. And the C-spine is where most lesions show up for multiple sclerosis and the brain. And so once those MRIs were ordered by my primary care doctor, we discovered all these lesions. And it's a, and thank goodness, because it was many months of not having a diagnosis and not having any treatment. Uh, and I know for some people it's years before they get answers, if they ever do get answers. What this really reminds me is um, this thematic conversation about Western medicine and Eastern and alternative medicine. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is when we don't have a diagnosis or things feel difficult with medication, et cetera, we naturally go to think about alternative medicine. And sometimes that journey can work and sometimes that can actually get super complex for people. So I'm really curious about how did you work out or make some discernment about who to go see and what were some of the things that you were like, okay, that does not work for me. You know, most of my gut 
feelings about that does not work for me came from Western medicine. Um, I had already been seeing an acupuncturist. And so it was someone that I trusted. And um, I had, you know, I'd gone to like an eye doctor because I had a vision spot that had shown up as part of my symptoms and couldn't find anything there. And it wasn't until um, one of my doctors started talking about a test that sounded really painful, which a lot of people go through where they stick a needle in your muscle and they send an electric current in there. And then they do this test to see if your foot can feel sharp pain. And I I wasn't quite sure how it worked, but I knew I wasn't very interested in it. And, And then when I finally transferred to the multiple sclerosis clinic, at one of the major research hospitals. Um, the doctor who I first saw recommended that I get a lumbar puncture, which is also known as a spinal tap, which is a pretty significant procedure. And I've heard stories anywhere from, I felt no pain, I was fine, to I've heard stories of people having complications and serious things happening. I don't want to go into it, but um, I knew that there was a range of possibilities and I was lucky to have a mom who told me, and she taught me this from very young, that I'm in charge of my body, that I get to decide even when the fancy knowledgeable doctors are telling me, get this test and get that test and take this med I knew more deeply that I got to decide. Now, I was open to the possibility of these different tests, but what I tried was just pushing back a little bit. And what I found was they just said, okay. And I thought, if this wasn't something that you were going to fight for, why were you suggesting that I should do it? And by the way, with MS, it is a standard test to get a lumbar puncture and to examine the fluid in the spine and to get this definitive answer. But with my lesions, the MRI imaging, all of that, they had what they needed. They, they tested my blood, they ruled out other conditions, and they, they had what they needed to diagnose me with MS. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm not saying I'm against these tests, but I am sensitive. I'm a person who gets really deeply impacted by what happens to my body. And I think a lot of us are. And so I'm not sure if this is exactly answering your question about Eastern and Western medicine, but I can say that it is very much about my gut and having collaborative conversations where I do kind of put my foot down a little bit and say, wait a minute, (laughs) do I have to do this? Is it that important? Uh, and, and in the long run, it just turned out that I didn't have to get this lumbar puncture. It's super interesting because I call them badass boundaries. And um, yeah. we have, if you don't have them when you get diagnosed or in your symptoms, you will get them. Like that's what illness will bring to you. It will bring you boundaries. So true. I love that. Yeah, it's one of the blessings, really. Of and and for me, um, it it what it turned out to be was just like, especially with my fatigue. One of the badass boundaries that I experienced was learning that I just didn't have energy to do stuff that didn't fill me up. I just didn't have the energy for it. Now. Wouldn't it have been cool if I discovered that before MS? Well, my body 
you know, kind of got in the way of me doing stuff that wasn't meaningful to me. So I actually wound up developing boundaries and preferences more clearly because it just didn't have the energy for what wasn't important. It's super exciting to hear it. And it's um, the clarity that comes with illness as well. One of the things I'm really hearing in you is that a lot more clarity started to land in your life about what you wanted to do. That's what I'm hearing underneath this conversation. Is that true? It's so true. And I, I love that you're saying that. And it's so exciting to talk to you because I'm usually on the other end of the conversation and the interviews. And, and it's, it's just, it's fun. I love talking to people with chronic illness because there is this clarity that comes and it's not, of course, we know it's not the illness that bestows upon us these gifts. It's our response to the illness. It's our engagement. It's like we're, you know, to put it in a pretty metaphor, we're dancing with life. We're dancing with a circumstance that we did not invite into our lives. But there is clarity that comes when we only have the bandwidth for so much. We don't have endless energy and time and emotional bandwidth to spend on things. And so the clarity that shows up is like, oh, I guess I want to slow down in my life. Or, oh, I don't like having shallow conversations with people. It's just not fun for me. Or I want to be outdoors more. And I didn't realize that because I was giving my energy to stuff without really paying attention to what I wanted and needed. Yeah, I think that the process of refining with your body what works for you and your body and emotionally, it's it can be an intense journey. Like it's not like this is without pain or without suffering, but the pain and the suffering can be utilised to make decisions and choices about. What were some of the big decisions, if any, you made in your career or in your relationships or simply as you're talking about where you want to spend your time? Over the course of, you know, just being a human and being a human with illness, I, I there were some quick decisions that I made. Like I remember walking into the office of my then supervisor in the organization that I worked in during the day, because I also worked at night at a counseling clinic. Um, and I said, you know, I had this high, like probably, yeah, definitely the highest organizational position I'd ever had. And it was a temporary position because the person before me had left and I was sort of the interim and I walked into his office and I said, I don't want to do this long-term because there was a question about whether or not I'd want this position for myself. And I just knew I didn't. And so I just walked in, into his office. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, we had a meeting planned, but I brought some clarity with me into that meeting. And it was actually really helpful for him too, because then he got to move forward with the process of a search and I got to feel the relief of knowing I didn't have to deal with this new diagnosis while planning out a career as, a, you know, having two jobs and a huge responsibility at work. And so I got to let go eventually of the entire first job 
because I was training to be a therapist and was finally working with clients. And so one day I actually said, I'm ready to just work with clients in my therapy practice. And oh my goodness, that was a dream that I had had for many years um, at that point for five years. And so it was really exciting to just give myself the peace of having a flexible work schedule. I got to choose my hours. I could choose when I would nap. I would, and eventually realized that working with clients online was really effective, even though at first I was like, is it going to be as good of a connection therapeutically? But I found that when I shifted to working online, this was another kind of piece of clarity that came was, oh my goodness, there's still deep connection that's possible. I don't have to travel and use my spoons of energy for traveling and schedule in more naps during my clinical days. I can nap at home in between and I didn't need as many more naps because I, was, I wasn't traveling and my clients really appreciated it. They'd introduce me to their cats and dogs and show me their room or show me their porch or whatever. And we'd have these really intimate therapy sessions. And that's what enabled me to start being location independent, which I think anyone with chronic illness um, understands when we have to rally our bodies to be in a particular place, it puts a lot of pressure on mm. work-wise because that's how we're making money. Um, so being able to work from wherever my laptop is has been a huge transition for me. So when I look back at like having two jobs where I had to be in person all the time mm. and look, and now I don't have to be anywhere in particular, it's, mm. it's incredible that the shift. Yeah, I think that that's while the rest of the world's catching up. I worked from home. I worked part-time in an office for a long period of time, but I ended up having to work from home just medically because it wasn't possible to structure myself up and then hop on a tram or hop in a cab and go to work. Mm. Um, and I found in that process there's the difficulty of the conversations with colleagues so in your transition to full-time therapy, did you experience talking to colleagues and how did you manage those conversations about what you did and didn't share? It is tricky. And I think I noticed that I felt differently about different people and in different organizations. So like there was my day job and then there was my clinical job. And um, I really had to check in with how much do I want people to know and why? Because as much as I believe in the destigmatizing of illness and actually the normalization of the fact that most people have some kind of health challenge and it's not actually a big deal in terms of, you know, saying that there's a problem or that it's abnormal, it's actually really common. So in some ways I just feel it's fine, you know, just tell people. But then in other ways, it's a personal decision because even if we don't think that illness should be stigmatized, it doesn't mean that we necessarily want to be the advocate or, you know, like if you're already dealing with uh, a whole bunch of symptoms or big medical decisions, you might not want to be having deep conversations with people about what your current situation is. So I chose a few people that I trusted both in and outside of my two different jobs. And over time decided, I think it was two plus years into um, 
living with MS that I was ready to talk to my clients about it. Now, I didn't give them speeches or anything, but I started just mentioning it when it came up, if people had questions or if I could relate to something. And I noticed that it actually increased the intimacy. And I think it helped people to feel more normal because plenty of people have stuff happen with their bodies, whether it's short-term or long-term. Um, and I think there are also different kinds of conversations people, like colleagues especially, would have around being not in person for the therapy sessions. And so I think really it was just looking at therapy as traditionally done in a room. Yeah. And being willing to say, yes, it is traditionally done in a room and it's not the only way. And to maybe feel a little bit alone or unusual in my approach. But as we can see, fast forward to now, we're all online. <laughs> we're all quite used to it. I think this is really important because one of the things about the experience of illness is you do often need mental health support because it's yeah. a load emotionally and it's also a load cognitively to work it out. So then you have a bit of trial and error or you're looking for somebody who can help and in many ways that conversation you had with the medical community about is it stress can also turn up in the therapeutic relationship about trying to de-stress the experience of illness, mm. which if somebody doesn't know the experience, you just end up trying to justify and explain why you're stressed. So I'm yeah. wondering if you can share with us either some of the things that are important to you in the relationship with the client and also how to find a therapist. I think that's a really good point about there can be a for folks who don't quite understand illness from the inside and from their personal experience, or if they don't have someone close to them who lives with a chronic condition, there can be all kinds of assumptions. And, um, and I think it is important to make the distinction between minimizing someone's experience and kind of just chalking it up to a perception issue or a spiritual deficiency, which we know that's not what illness is. It's a biological reality um, and there's science there. And then also we know that there's a mind-body connection. So we know that our thoughts impact our bodies and, and in mainly ways like if I have a frightening dream, my heart rate will increase. Or if I think about a beautiful, peaceful place, my nervous system will start to regulate. So it's really important to know the distinction between the two and working with clients, I'm really, I love validating when they're going through the emotional stress of having illness, when they're going through, you know, the, the decisions that have to be made, the um, finding a new narrative about their lives, it can be overwhelming. And so I love validating how stressful it can be. And those of us with chronic illness know that we need to prioritize our peace more than maybe the average person. So a lot of the work that I do with clients in my therapy practice is around evaluating like what's going on in your life that's filling you up and what's going on in your life that's draining you. Because as our stress decreases, often we find that it's, it's just more manageable our conditions can improve, but that's not the, I mean, if we're doing, you know, you could meditate and sit on 
a lotus and like be in the rays of sun 24 seven and still have an illness. It's not like that's just going to solve everything. But when we do prioritize our peace, it can have such an important, huge impact. So your next question was about how do you find a therapist or what's important? Yeah. Yeah. I think that I mean, what you're describing is exactly what I work with clients around and it's to the letter, what's draining you, what's nourishing you. Like those two questions in any circumstance are the way that you really tune into yourself. And one of the things that I know about you is, and this is fantastic for everyone to know, on your website, you actually have a list, a directory of therapists as well. And I'm wondering, yes, if you will share with us, what are your tips for finding a therapist and what do you think is important? My first tip is to almost treat therapy like you're dating. And what I mean by that is not that it's a romantic relationship, but more that When you date someone, you're finding out if you want to spend more time with them. And with therapy, I think sometimes we can look at it the way that we do when we're assigned a doctor, which is, well, I guess this is my doctor now. And I actually believe in doing this with the medical team as well as if you don't like a doctor, if you can switch, go for it. And the same is true for therapy. So most therapists will offer a 15 minute or 20 or more conversation for free that you can use to talk to them and kind of get a feel for what their personalities are like. And it's really important. I think personally, I think even more important than whether or not the therapist has experience with chronic illness is whether or not their personality is one that you want to spend time with like an hour a week. Is this somebody who you can laugh with if that's important to you? Is this somebody who you can be real with? Is this someone who you're going to feel welcomed and accepted with? And is it somebody who you feel will give you challenge if you need it and and speak up and say, hey, maybe that's a pattern that keeps repeating. How can we step out of that pattern? So it may take more than that conversation. It may take a few sessions to decide if you want to continue. And I always tell this to people who call me to see if we can work together is we can do a session, but it's not a commitment to working with me forever. Cause you, that's a personal decision you get to decide. And then the other thing is the reason I have that, um, directory of therapists who specialize in health challenges and chronic illness is because I think it helps a lot of us skip the process of having to vet everyone and say, does this person get it? Um, if you want to visit that directory. Um, I think you're probably going to put the link somewhere, but it's um, laurenselfridge.com slash directory. And the other thing is I found um, some of the therapists that I tried at the very beginning of my diagnosis who specialized, I just didn't find were a great personality fit. And then I wound up finding another therapist who didn't bill herself as a chronic illness therapist, but she actually did have experience with it. But I found out after we met and she's just a great fit for me. And so I'm, I've been seeing my therapist for years and it's a lifelong self-care practice that I just think is so helpful if you have any kind of health challenge. I think there can be times and seasons for therapists and different modalities as well. Um, And as you come into diagnosis and then you sort of 
get into ongoing treatment or ongoing management, there's always that choice about who's traveling with you at which time. And I, love I that found, question. yeah, I found that that's really important to know because with specialists and doctors, yes, you can make new choices, but there's also a part where you're on a treatment path. And I think that can get a bit muddy. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, in terms of my thoughts on when to continue therapy and when to... Yeah, and when maybe even to take a break because therapy is intense and living with chronic illness, I think it's important to have someone to talk to, but I think we don't often talk about how you get under your own steam or you might want to take a course or you might want to do creative writing or other things potentially with your financial energy as well as your emotional energy. That's a great question. And I think it really depends on the the individual and the therapist. So some therapists are really strict about, if you want to see me, you got to come once a week. And then if you can't come once a week, then we need to end our work together. And that's okay. Um, And for some clients, they want to come less frequently. Um, Like some of the clients I see will come weekly and then some will come every other week. And then once we've built a foundation, some will say, let's move to an ad hoc model and I'll call you when I want to see you. And that works for me personally as a therapist because I find people have different, like you just said, different themes and seasons and places they want to put their energy. Um, But there's also the, um, the idea of considering as a client that you get to ask for what you want and need in the sessions. So for example, I'll just say as a client, I have actually spent time in therapy talking about business stuff. Like, where do I want to go next in my business? Because my therapist is someone I can trust with that. And there have been times when I didn't want to explore the depths of my emotions around childhood history or, you know, even talk about my chronic illness. I've wanted to talk about how to have more joy in my life. And so I feel really supported in that. And I think it's also good to use therapy how you want to use it when you want to use it so that you're getting what you need. And kind of, I think of therapy as like, you've got someone to conspire with uh, to build the life that you want. And if that means taking a break, then that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a conversation we don't often talk about. And I love what you said about using therapy for what works for you. So one of the things I'm aware of is that you're living with a chronic illness at varying degrees and you've really entrepreneurially crafted your own path long before being online was an option and an idea. Uh, So can you talk to us about what it's been like for you to find that confidence and make those steps to creating work that works for you and your body. Yeah, thinking outside the box is really important when we live with chronic illness, uh, whether it's around work or relationships or having fun. I think a lot of adapting is about finding sort of relentless commitment to your needs and then having creativity around how to meet them. So uh, 
for me, I knew I didn't want to give up being a therapist if something happened where my mobility changed or my energy levels decreased even more. And I wanted to find a way to feel really solid about being able to offer therapy no matter what. And so with, you know, moving to online, that really has given me a lot of freedom to feel like my body's not going to get in the way of, um, and when I say my body, what I mean is the circumstances of my body aren't going to get in the way of getting to an office if I need to. And the same is true of, of the fact that, you know, I wanted to start a podcast and I've also started a consulting business, working with people one-on-one who want to have more joy in their lives and focus in on fulfillment. And my feeling is the more people that I can impact from my living room, the better. And so the podcast was another example of wanting to have meaningful conversations because I much prefer to do things in connection versus alone. I just work better. I'm more generative in relationship. And so I said, I want to do something that's going to fill me up that will impact the world positively outside of just offering therapy. And I knew that the most fun way for me to do that would be in conversation. So I started the podcast, This Is Not What I Ordered, to focus on people's journeys, kind of like what you're doing and understanding how our relationships with ourselves can deepen and, and, and transform through the process of living with a health challenge. Um, so really it's been about focusing on what I like and what fills me up and also making it portable and something that I can do from home. And what about the courage to go out and trust yourself to create something? Like, did you go get business help support or how did, how did you make it safe enough to give it a go? Yeah, it, it was a combination of finding examples of others who had done something inspiring like that before and also hiring uh, business consultants to help me understand what direction I was going in and to know what steps needed to be taken to make it happen. Um, And also surrounding myself with people who believed in me (laughs) really helped. And that doesn't mean everybody in my life has to be behind a certain idea. It's really just having a few people, whether they're mentors or friends or your therapist or family member, who are people who are cheering you on. And the other piece to that was there was only so much safety I could feel because at the end of the day, it's a risk to have anything go public. You know, people are going to have opinions about it. Um, Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it everywhere in between. And so one of my fears was that, you know, people would just think I was ridiculous and make fun of me for telling my story. And I decided that my courageous response to that stressful thought was, well, if they didn't like that episode, then they're really going to have a lot to work with because I'm going to keep putting more out and just let them enjoy making fun of me. And it was my way of making myself bigger than that kind of circumstance and saying, I'm I'm as expansive and multifaceted as all the stars in the sky. And there's nothing that could take away from that. Even if only one person likes my podcast and a million hate it, that's okay. 
you know, I'm doing this because I have it to give. I'm not doing it because I need to have a particular impact on every single person, but sort of relinquishing other people's opinions enough to just speak truthfully was really important. And I make mistakes all the time and I say weird stuff and I make jokes that aren't funny sometimes. And, you know, it's part of being awkward and human. And if we let that stand in our way from sharing our gifts with the world, then people don't get to benefit from knowing us. I think this is so important because when you're living with chronic illness, particularly in those times where you can, can't get out of bed or you can barely find the energy, there can be this thought and sense of there's nothing left, it's, it's over, I've got nothing to give. And the people around you can try and be helpful in a way that makes you feel more infantilized or mm. try and tell you what to do. And what you're talking about is finding that path towards doing what's in your heart, even if it's one small step, yeah. but that that will bring you energy and joy and you don't need to sit in the dark simply because you're whacked on one day. You can find the energy on the next day or just the thought to move forward. I love those words. I almost feel like I want that to be a sound clip of you saying that, that we can all just press play whenever we need it. Because I think even if you think about whoever it is in your mind who is the most successful or the most prolific or the biggest, best, whatever, those people still have self-doubt. They still have days where they feel overwhelmed or like they can't go on. I really believe that. And I haven't spoken to every human in the universe, but I really believe that there is a common sense of um, fear and limitation that can show up in any of us. It doesn't matter how long you've been meditating. It doesn't matter how well studied you are on the art of whatever it is that you're doing. But when we experience our own response to that as a yes, and we say like, yes, I'm going to give myself permission to feel this feeling of overwhelm, suddenly it's not as much of an enemy. And, and I, and I also heard what you said about, you know, sometimes we feel down and the people around us kind of want to make it better or treat us like we don't have agency. And I think there's a lot of magic that can happen when we're, you know, the seed that's planted in the soil that feels like it's surrounded in darkness. Like being in the darkness is still useful. It's, you're still learning you're still experiencing. And as the little seed cracks open and as the little sprout starts to come above the surface of the earth, sometimes we get a chance to start sharing about what it was like when we were just surrounded in soil, right? But when we try to rush it, that's also that can also be problematic. And I don't know if you're referring to like, sometimes people will try and push us like, oh, just be happy, just feel fine, right? Like just have a good attitude. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of having a good attitude, but part of that is having a, an attitude of welcoming, you know, mm -hmm. towards what's here versus trying to pretend or, you know, like trying to push ourselves to feel something that we're not feeling in a given moment. So, um, yeah, so having a podcast isn't the only way to like live, right? There are times where I've taken long breaks from the podcast and said, like, I can't right now. And that's okay. I really love this discussion that we're having because there's so much juice in it and the darkness. 
for me, what I work with is the myth of Persephone because I think it's fantastic mm. as a Greek myth for chronic illness because she descends as a maiden down to Hades and the underworld and actually becomes the queen of the underworld and then rises back up in her sovereignty and agency to the overworld. And while metaphorically she's the cycle of winter and spring, to me she's also the psychological map for living with chronic illness. Oh, I got so many chills as you were saying that. Yes, <laughs> I think that sounds just about right. Mm. And, yeah, and, and learning to be in, in the darkness and knowing that there's a special power unlike any other that comes from that mm. and that you cannot recreate. It's either, You either get the opportunity or you're not in the opportunity, but it's it can't be manufactured. It must be lived through. And it's, it is, that's what you refer to in, in your work as the gifts, like one of the transformative gifts of living with illness. Mm. How has illness changed your relationships, like in your personal world and your personal life? Has it been easy or has it really brought some challenges for you? Overall, I think it's been something that like with anything vulnerable, where we're imperfect and we're new, like for me, chronic illness has always felt new because it's only been six years. I'm not a master of it, but sharing that vulnerability with other people has brought us closer together. And it's also shown me which people aren't quite getting it. You know, like some people will just project onto me. Most people don't, but some people do in a way that doesn't feel good. And I, I either have a chance to tell them what would feel better or see how they respond to that or, and say, I don't really want this person in my life. Um, but I find that the type of people I want to hang out with anyway are the folks who want to have these deep, rich conversations about the imperfections of life. And so for me, I feel like I have way more friends now because of the chronic illness community who get it and just lovely people who, even if they don't have chronic illness, are are here for it and want to be on the adventure with me. There's something powerful, I think, too, about a partner being in relationship with you and seeing the reality behind the sort of curtains of what is the psychological journey, where the distress actually is, where the confusion is. Has that been something that you've explored or something you felt in your own relationship? Yeah, I would say, you know, even with somebody who's the closest to you, I think most people can relate to that still I'm the only one living in my body, but I feel so able to be honest and real about my needs with my partner. And um, and part of that is just because it's the relationship that we've built since the beginning. You know, I revealed MS like right from the beginning. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to do when you have a podcast about chronic illness. <laughs> just say, here, go listen to this. Um, but there's, there is an intimacy to like having a real circumstance. Like, oh, now we need to figure out how to proceed with the day or with the month, given that we had these plans, but... It looks like energy is this way, or we have to make time for the hospital, you know, infusion where I, I get my medication. And it's just, it's inconvenient, you know, but it's important to make the distinction between me and the MS because I'm not the inconvenience. 
you know, and, and I know that in my partnership, we identify that it's like a circumstance that we're both dealing with and it impacts us differently, but that, you know, it, it is annoying (laughs) to say the very least. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful because getting that differentiation between me and the condition can be complex. And one of the reasons I I know it's complex is because I have a vertigo condition, which actually is affecting my brain in a particular way and distress when you think you are falling 24 hours that that's going to create distress. And I was so grateful for a neurologist who looked at me and said, just anxiety is a result of this condition, not that my condition is creating the anxiety. Mm. And that really helped me get that separation. Even if in the moment I feel completely blended and fused with the condition, I can then look back and go, oh, that's right, anxiety is part of this process. Yeah, it's sort of just, it's like this circumstance that's showing up, that it's not your fault, you didn't select it, you know, and look at you, you know, you're living with it. Not everybody understands how to do that. Mm. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things is to make that decision of how, how can I find the power in this? Where's the power? Where's the moment? Like, okay, if I can't walk and I can't read and I can't write and every single movement is making me dizzy, the one thing I have is I could have self-compassion. So can I practice self-compassion? And the answer for me for many, many weeks when I first got vertigo was, no, I don't have any self-compassion. So then it was like, Can I have compassion for myself that I can't have self-compassion? Okay, I can work with that. (laughs) So I think it is about finding the moment of what, how can I use it, not in a way that's pushing you or a struggle for you, but how can I be with myself even when I do not like how this is experiencing and what I'm feeling about myself here? And that's so real. And I think sometimes in my hardest symptom moments, I think about things that people like you and people like me, anybody with a health challenge has experienced, or it's like when you're in the midst of the hardest symptoms, you can be the most creative and spiritual and whatever person, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can just be, you can have meditated for a long time. But in those moments, it's just an experience happening. It can feel so immersive. It can feel bigger than us. It can feel like just getting through each moment is an accomplishment. And maybe I'm not thinking about, you know, a beautiful article that I want to write or a voicemail that I want to send someone or whatever painting that I want to create. But what you just described of like, how can I just be in this moment the way that I best know how and to just be in it. And then to even, if you can muster up the self-compassion and then if you can't, like you said, what if I can just normalize the fact that I don't have the bandwidth for self-compassion? Well, that Mm. is self-compassion, right? And Mm. it's just like, well, of course I don't have self-compassion and it can look really funny and really gruff, but it's just, yeah, like 
I'm getting through this moment the best way that I know how. And when I'm in those, I think about people like you and people like me who are in that moment either right now and we're sharing it together or who have experienced it and shared that with me before. And, and I don't feel as alone, even mm. though I'm the only one in the body that's mm. going through it. Uh, it's really a beautiful capturing of it because the aloneness with illness, even if you have family and friends, it's still you and you're the only one in your body and it's hard. Like that is hardcore self-connection work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. That's a great way to put it. Hardcore self-connection work. Mm. And in terms of then where you are in your life and the things that are nourishing for you, you've started a new consulting business as well. Would you like to share with us the things that are important to you and that you are, you know, in connection with community through? Yeah, so I think whether you have chronic illness or not living on this earth in my opinion is about finding the life that you want for yourself and for the people that you love and the activities that you love and that evolves and changes over time and then when you have a chronic illness I think it sort of presses fast forward on identifying what's truly meaningful and what fulfillment really means and I think it helps us redefine fulfillment sometimes because we can be very caught up in having all the trappings of what looks like a successful life, like the money and the house and the partner and the cat or whatever it is. But even the most wealthy people have told stories of like, I think of Tom Shadiak who wrote, who um, he worked on some of the Ace Ventura films and he was like a producer, I believe. And he created the film I Am because he got the mansion and realized how very alone he felt when he was there and wanted to just travel and interview people about like, I forget, I haven't watched the film in a while. It's an excellent film, but basically I think he just talked about like, what, what are we doing here? What is the point? Right. He sold all his stuff and like got a little camper van and just traveled and connected with people. And it was the opposite of aloneness, but it was also the opposite of his previous definition of what his life should look like. So I think one of the gifts of chronic illness for me has been really prioritizing fulfillment in my life, authentic fulfillment for me, which evolves over time, what my definition is. And then I love helping people find that for themselves, whether they have illness or not. I just really enjoy sitting with people and helping them connect with their intuition and identify what's next for them because we can have goals that we reach and then realize that we want a new goal. Like what's the next mountaintop? Mm -hmm. We can have a period where we realize, oh, I've been unconsciously moving towards goals that aren't even mine. And then we pause and say, what are the goals that I want for myself? And so I created something called a creative vision retreat. And it's this online, you know, like a virtual one-on-one -on -one retreat where I use creative visualization to help people tap into the little quiet voice that wants to be spoken around what's next. And it's so interesting how it's often stuff that we didn't imagine would show up and might not even feel like it makes sense at first or fits into this big picture. But even little things like I, I want to spend, I want to get a dog and spend time with a dog more. You know, these aren't things that we're taught we should feel ambition towards. Right? 
but that's maybe what you want. Maybe that's what's meaningful to you. And like for me in my personal life right now, I'm realizing laughter is sort of one of the main points of living, like joy and humor. And I love comedians and I love listening to funny podcasts. And so I just signed up for an improv comedy class as a beginner. And there is no goal other than to just learn how to be a good comedic teammate with other people. There's no goal other than to just like enjoy it, be a beginner and learn. And, and, and I don't know what will unfold from there. And that's part of what's exciting about it. But that's why I started the consulting business is to help people identify like, what are the little joys in your life right now? What do you want more of in your daily living? And what are you moving towards? And I'm doing that alongside people. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm identifying the different little rituals and routines and adventures that fill me up. And we kind of, we're just learning together. I think the word ritual really strikes me as well. And finding those things in your life that you can create the routine or the marker for your own well-being. And for me in the morning, it's like just taking the moment before any other engagement to scan my body and also to journal what's in my system before checking the phone, before working with other people so that we're connected to ourselves because we can spend a lot of the day not being connected to ourselves. That's so true. And we have these delightful distractions in our phones and our computers and the sound waves, you know, like there's just so much to stimulate us, which is wonderful and can especially be helpful in the midst of challenging times. And what you just described of that peace in the morning when you give yourself the space before the distractions of the day set in to tune into who you are. Um, I personally find, and I am a morning person, that it changes my whole day. Mm. On days when I really carve out, even if it's 20 minutes, to just sit with a cup of tea and just look out the window and notice that birds are flying (laughs) and they don't even know that I exist, you know, and I'm not very significant to those birds. And just seeing myself in the midst of uh, a universe and just like feeling what I'm feeling, you know, crying, if I feel like crying or laughing. And when I do that in the morning, um, it changes how I relate to myself for the rest of the day. Yeah, it's beautiful. I really want to thank you for sharing everything with us. This conversation was so rich. So we'll make sure in the show notes that there's all the connections to Lauren's podcast, her website and her creative retreat so that you can connect with her. So thank you so much, Lauren, for sharing with us. And I really, really appreciate all the joy, love and wisdom that you brought to our conversation. Mm, Thank you, Michelle. It was really nice to spend this time with you. And I'm glad that I get to be part of this bigger, wonderful project that you're creating. Okay, thank you. Lauren and I had such a great conversation and you can really hear how we found kinship with each other. Now, as promised, you'll find the link to connect with me for a complimentary consultation in October 2021 in the show notes or just pop over to my website and have a look at the Queen of the Underworld program. 
Plus, you can follow Lauren at Lauren Selfridge Official on Instagram, and you can follow me at Michelle Irving Official on Instagram. And join me again next week for another episode of The Pajama Interviews.